It's the 25th of July in the year of our salvation, 2007. It's the Feast of St. James. And you're back with Father Z and another podcast. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long finger pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Today we're going to talk about active participation, what it means, and also we'll talk about the Sabine Farm. Why is it called the Sabine Farm? I know some of you have been scratching your heads about that. Here we go. They may call you chief, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are, you're gonna have to serve somebody. We welcome back as our guest today, Joseph Ratzinger, the present Pope, Benedict XVI, who wrote a few years back a wonderful little book called The Spirit of the Liturgy. It was published in English in the year 2000 by Ignatius Press, and I urge you to take a look at this book. The last time I made a podcast, we used this book uh, to discuss the orientation and the position of the altar and where the priest stands in relationship to the altar and the congregation, what all this means. I'm looking at several questions uh, of great importance for the celebration of the older form of the Roman Rite, what some people call the Tridentine Mass, but what we now know as the wonderful older form of Mass, the extraordinary form of Mass that will be de-restricted on the 14th of September, the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross. Uh, recently, Pope Benedict, in his Modu Proprio Sumorum Pontificum, uh, stated that uh, there are two uses of the one Roman rite, an ordinary form, which is the Novus Ordo, and an extraordinary form, which is the older form of Mass in use uh, at the time of the Second Vatican Council and before. And uh, there are different characteristics of the Mass which might leave people kind of scratching their heads if they never knew what it was. Or maybe, uh, since it's been a long time, since it's been you know, widely in use, uh, people will wonder, well, why is the priest facing that way? Why do we kneel so much? Why is there so much silence? Why don't we have what you know seems like the active participation that we have in Masses when we go to the new Mass? What's going on with all these things? Well, I'm digging into these questions, in especially using Joseph Ratzinger's book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. This book uh, was named after a famous book by a great liturgist of the 20th century and a figure in the liturgical movement, Romano Guardini. Uh, Joseph Ratzinger named this book directly after that book because he wanted, by this book, to spur the beginning of a new liturgical movement if he could and so he delves into lots of very interesting questions uh, of course from his perspective as a theologian and a great writer 
on the liturgy. This, these writings are very, very helpful for us uh, in understanding just exactly what uh, Pope Benedict is trying to accomplish with these controversial moves like uh, issuing the provisions of Summorum Pontifi. What we're going to hear comes from the second chapter of part three of the book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. It's a chapter entitled The Body and the Liturgy, and the first part of this chapter is about active participation. And it's really quite straightforward. I don't have to give you too many introductory comments on this, except uh, that I want you to listen very carefully for how he underscores the fact that what is going on in the Mass is really the action of God himself. And so that is the the key concept for understanding how we have to participate in it. And another thing that we need to pay attention to is his very sharp words about liturgical catechesis, about the situation that we're in right now in the modern church. This is one of the reasons why I'm making podcasts exactly like this. So without further ado, let's launch right into Joseph Ratzinger's uh, comments on active participation from his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. Chapter 2, The Body and the Liturgy 1. Active Participation To express one of its main ideas for the shaping of the liturgy, the Second Vatican Council gave us the phrase participatio actuosa, the active participation of everyone in the Opus Dei, in what happens in the worship of God. It was quite right to do so. The Catechism of the Catholic Church points out that the word liturgy speaks to us of a common service and thus has a reference to the whole people of God. Compare Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1069. But what does this active participation come down to? What does it mean that we have to do? Unfortunately, the word was very quickly misunderstood to mean something external, entailing a need for general activity as if as many people as possible, as often as possible, should be visibly engaged in action. However, the word participation refers to a principal action in which everyone has a part, and so if we want to discover the kind of doing that active participation involves, we need first of all to determine what this central actio is, in which all the members of the community are supposed to participate. The study of the liturgical sources provides an answer that at first may surprise us, though in the light of the biblical foundations considered in the first part, it is quite self-evident. By the actio of the liturgy, the sources mean the Eucharistic prayer. The real liturgical action, the true liturgical act, is the oratio, the great prayer that forms the core of the Eucharistic celebration, the whole of which was therefore called Oratio by the Fathers. 
at first simply in terms of the form of the liturgy. This was quite correct because the essence of the Christian liturgy is found in the oratio. This is the center and fundamental form. Calling the Eucharist oratio was then a quite standard response to the pagans and to questioning intellectuals in general. What the fathers were saying was this. The sacrificial animals and all those things that you had and have, and which ultimately satisfy no one, are now abolished. In their place has come the sacrifice of the word. We are the spiritual religion, in which, in truth, a word-based worship takes place. Goats and cattle are no longer slaughtered. Instead, the word summing up our existence is addressed to God and identified with the word, the word of God, who draws us into true worship. Perhaps it would be useful to note here that the word oratio originally means not prayer, for which the word is prex, but solemn public speech. Such speech now attains its supreme dignity through its being addressed to God, in full awareness that it comes from him and is made possible by him. But this is only just a hint of the central issue. This oratio, the Eucharistic prayer, the canon, is really more than speech. It is actio in the highest sense of the word. For what happens in it is that the human actio, as performed hitherto by the priests in the various religions of the world, steps back and makes way for the actio divina, the action of God. In this oratio, the priest speaks with the eye of the Lord. This is my body, this is my blood. He knows that he is not now speaking from his own resources, but in virtue of the sacrament that he has received. He has become the voice of someone else who is now speaking and acting. This action of God, which takes place through human speech, is the real action for which all of creation is in expectation. The elements of the earth are transubstantiated, pulled, so to speak, from their creaturely anchorage, grasped at the deepest ground of their being, and changed into the body and blood of the Lord. The new heaven and the new earth are anticipated. The real action in the liturgy in which we are all supposed to participate is the action of God himself. This is what is new and distinctive about the Christian liturgy. God himself acts and does what is essential. He inaugurates the new creation, makes himself accessible to us, so that through the things of the earth, through our gifts, we can communicate with him in a personal way. But how can we participate, have a part in this action? Are not God and man completely incommensurable? Can man, the finite and sinful one, cooperate with God, the infinite and holy one? Yes, he can, precisely because God himself has become man, become body, and here again and again he comes through his body to us who live in the body. The whole event of the Incarnation, Cross, Resurrection, and Second Coming 
is present as the way by which God draws man into cooperation with himself. As we have seen, this is expressed in the liturgy in the fact that the petition for acceptance is part of the oratio. True, the sacrifice of the Logos is accepted already and forever, but we must still pray for it to become our sacrifice, that we ourselves, as we said, may be transformed into the Logos, Logisirt, conformed to the Logos, and so be made the true body of Christ. That is the issue, and that is what we have to pray for. This petition itself is a way into the Incarnation and the Resurrection, the path that we take in the wayfaring state of our existence. In this real action, in this prayerful approach to participation, there is no difference between priests and laity. True, addressing the oratio to the Lord in the name of the Church and at its core, speaking with the very eye of Jesus Christ, that is something that can be done only through sacramental empowerment. But participation in that which no human being does, that which the Lord himself and only he can do, that is equally for everyone. In the words of St. Paul, it is a question of being united to the Lord and thus becoming one in spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 17 the point is that, ultimately, the difference between the Actio Christi and our own action is done away with. There is only one action which is at the same time his and ours, ours because we have become one body and one spirit with him. The uniqueness of the Eucharistic liturgy lies precisely in the fact that God himself is acting and that we are drawn into that action of God. Everything else is, therefore, secondary. Of course, external actions, reading, singing, the bringing up of the gifts, can be distributed in a sensible way. By the same token, participation in the liturgy of the word, reading, singing, is to be distinguished from the sacramental celebration proper. We should be clearly aware that the external actions are quite secondary here. Doing really must stop when we come to the heart of the matter, the oratio. It must be plainly evident that the oratio is the heart of the matter, but that it is important precisely because it provides a space for the actio of God. Anyone who grasps this will easily see that it is not now a matter of looking at or toward the priest, but of looking together toward the Lord and going out to meet him. The almost theatrical entrance of different players into the liturgy, which is so common today, especially during the preparation of the gifts, quite simply misses the point. If the various external actions, as a matter of fact there are not very many of them, though they are being artificially multiplied, become the essential in the liturgy, if the liturgy degenerates into general activity, then we have radically misunderstood the theodrama of the liturgy and lapsed 
almost into parody. True liturgical education cannot consist in learning and experimenting with external activities. Instead, one must be led toward the essential actio that makes the liturgy what it is, toward the transforming power of God who wants, through what happens in the liturgy, to transform us and the world. In this respect, liturgical education today, both of priests and laity, is deficient to a deplorable extent. Much remains to be done here. At this point the reader will perhaps ask, what about the body? With this idea of word-based sacrifice, oratio, have you not shifted everything over to the spiritual side? That charge might have applied to the pre-Christian idea of a Logos liturgy, but it cannot be true of the liturgy of the Word incarnate, who offers himself to us in his body and blood, and thus in a corporeal way. It is, of course, the new corporeality of the risen Lord, but it remains true corporeality, and it is this that we are given in the material signs of bread and wine. This means that we are laid hold of by the Logos and for the Logos in our very bodies, in the bodily existence of our everyday life. The true liturgical action is the deed of God, and for that very reason the liturgy of faith always reaches beyond the cultic act into everyday life, which must itself become liturgical, a service for the transformation of the world. Much more is required of the body than carrying objects around and other such activities. A demand is made on the body in all its involvement in the circumstances of everyday life. The body is required to become capable of resurrection, to orient itself toward the resurrection, toward the kingdom of God. In a word, quote, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where God's will is done, there is heaven. There earth becomes heaven. Surrendering ourselves to the action of God, so that we in our turn may cooperate with him, that is what begins in the liturgy and is meant to unfold further beyond it. Incarnation must always lead through cross the transforming of our wills in a communion of will with God, to resurrection, to that rule of love, which is the kingdom of God. The body must be trained, so to speak, for the resurrection. Let us remember, incidentally, that the unfashionable word askesis can simply be translated into English as training, Nowadays, we train with enthusiasm, perseverance, and great renunciation for many different purposes. Why do we not train ourselves for God and his kingdom? Quote, I train my body, says St. Paul, and subdue it. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, RSV adapted. He also uses the discipline of athletes as an image for training in one's own life. 
This training is an essential part of everyday life, but it has to find its inner support in the liturgy, in the liturgy's orientation toward the risen Christ. Let me say once again, it is a way of learning to accept the other in his otherness, a training for love, a training to help us accept the holy other, God, to be shaped and used by him. The body has a place within the divine worship of the word made flesh, and it is expressed liturgically in a certain discipline of the body, in gestures that have developed out of the liturgy's inner demands, and that make the essence of the liturgy, as it were, bodily visible. These gestures may vary in their details from culture to culture, but in their essential forms they are part of that culture of faith which has grown out of Christian cult. They form, therefore, a common language that crosses the borders of the different cultures. Now at this point, um, Joseph Ratzinger, in this wonderful book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, uh, moves into looking at different uh, dimensions of this common language that he talks about, this lang common language of gesture that crosses over the borders of different cultures. He looks at the sign of the cross, you know, what it means, and he looks at different positions of the body kneeling and uh, sitting and standing and what they all mean. It's really very, very engaging. Once you get that foundation of, of the body being trained for resurrection, of us being oriented toward the resurrection. You see, this also forms part of uh, Ratzinger's argument for the orientation of the altar. If we understand that uh, the Christian prayer is directed to Christ who is coming, to the east, which is the symbol of the resurrection, which is Christ himself returning to us. If we have to orient ourselves toward the risen Christ who is to come. Therefore, this finds expression in our Christian worship at our altar, so that priest and people are all facing the same direction. They're facing Christ who is coming. This is one of the reasons why it's not important. In fact, it's really not very good to face for the priest and people to face each other. Because it's the the priest, insofar as he, he's a priest, and, and with holy orders, he's able to speak with the eye of Jesus. The He says, this is my body and this is my blood. But the part of the Eucharistic action that is really important is the part which affects everybody equally priest and people alike, and so they all must be oriented toward the Lord, even though there are those moments when, because of his sacramental character, the priest speaks with I. The people shouldn't be looking at him when he says that, but rather through, with, and beyond him toward the one who's really speaking the words, and that is the risen Lord. Remember that Holy Mass is all about what the Lord does. And so, active participation is training for the resurrection 
Active participation is orienting ourselves toward the Lord. Active participation, of course, comes to be expressed outwardly through bodily gesture. But really what it is is active receptivity. We are training for the resurrection is making us actively receptive of the Lord who's coming to us. He is the resurrection. He is the life. We want to receive him and we want to receive those gifts that he's promised to us. And so active participation in the liturgy is really all about being actively receptive to what the Lord wants to give us in Holy Mass. So you can see how how uh, Joseph Ratzinger builds on certain concepts in order to present a, an image of, of who we are. We are people who are destined for the resurrection. Indeed, that's really kind of a starting place. It's both a starting place for him and a conclusion. If we are capable of resurrection, then we have to train ourselves for it, and that has consequences for the way we pray. When I am not in Rome, I spend my time in the United States at a very remote location, which I call the Sabine Farm. And when I talk about the Sabine Farm in the blog, I always get email from people who are very agitated with curiosity all about the place. They want to know what kind of farm it is, what I raise, and what I do here, and where it is. Well, folks, I'm not going to tell you where it is, and uh, it's not a farm. I don't raise anything here. Uh, and the Sabine farm doesn't have anything to do with geography. If there's some place called, you know, the Sabine, whatever, anywhere in the United States, it's not there. Um, this place is named, nicknamed by me, the Sabine farm, because of the Roman poet Horace, who had a rural retreat in the Sabine hills to the east and north of Rome not far from modern Tivoli. This was his getaway from the fast and furious Rome, which was as maddening in ancient times as it is now. And so when I get away to this place, it's like Horace going to his Sabine villa, his Sabine farm. And Horace is one of my favorite poets. And um, when I was studying classical languages years ago in university, one of my profs told us that the older we get, uh, the more we would come to appreciate Horace. And that's turned out to be true because he loved the country life. He loved the simple, quiet, uncomplicated life. And uh, he had to get away from the city once in a while, and that's just like me. And uh, as, as a matter of fact, this whole issue of getting away from the city out into the simple life and the country life, or maybe the contemplative life, is a topos in ancient literature. It's a commonplace. And uh, even Augustine of Hippo, the great doctor of grace, um, talks about... Uh, is constantly contrasting the active life and the contemplative life and how to balance those things. And uh, he uses as figures, for example, uh, Peter for the active life and John for the contemplative, uh, Martha for the active life and Mary for the contemplative. Horace uh, is a little simpler than that. He, for example, uh, you, does this in a couple of little stories. I'm sure you've heard of them. 
he has the image of the country mouse and the city mouse a little story about them about how the city mouse goes out to visit the country mouse and they're nibbling on their grain and the country mouse is saying oh isn't it wonderful out here it's you know very nice and calm and the city mouse says if you think this is this kind of life is great you ought to see what i've got in the city and so the country mouse goes with the city mouse in and they sneak in through the walls and into a great villa a great house of a great lord there and and uh, they find the remnants of a banquet and the city mouse pretends to be the slave and he waits on the country mouse and he brings them these wonderful things uh, that they never dream of in the country and as they're enjoying themselves suddenly in the house they hear a door slam open and the sound of dogs barking and getting closer as they run through the house and they have to escape uh, for their lives and when they get out of the terror of this house the country mouse says i think i'm going to go back to the country we might not have these great things but life is sure a lot simpler there and um, there's another story that horace has about the racehorse and the plow horse and they're talking about their lots and how different their lives are and uh, the one envies the other and the un <laughs> and then they begin to describe their lives to each other and they find out that maybe it maybe the life uh, of the other guy isn't so great after all we should be content with what we have wonderful little morality stories all through horace he's a very sharp very wise guy and uh horace talks about the sabine farm uh in many of his poems he talks about for example out there in the country he runs into a wolf one day and it scares him and he talks about uh putting up his storing up his wine and uh, he talks about sacrificing a little goat uh, at a spring that uh, flowed down from the mountain above, uh, which he calls the Fons Banduzie. Horace wrote a wonderful ode about the Fons Banduzie. Maybe I'll read that in a podcast one day. Horace uh, was buried next to his great patron, uh, Mycenas, who was a friend of Augustus caesar and a great patron of the arts he was buried perhaps at uh, mycenas's villa which was on the esquiline hill one of the seven hills of rome as you walk down away from santa maria maggiore next time you're in rome and you're going from saint mary major toward the lateran basilica go down the left side of the street on the via mirulana and you'll pass by an ancient building reconstructed building it's of opus reticulatum it looks like uh, the the stones form like a net pattern and uh, that was perhaps one of the buildings of mycenas's uh, great estate we don't know that for sure but you can walk right up and and touch something from that era now there's a, a bit of a dispute about uh, the location of Horace's villa, his country villa, his Sabine farm, the real one. Um, but they found, some archaeologists have found a villa out there exactly where Horace said it was, in the valley of Ustica, in the shadow of Mount Lucretilis. That's 35 miles from Rome, near Licenza. It's a lovely trip out there. You can actually take public transportation out. You can ride the bus, and then you have to switch at Tivoli, and then you go up into the hills. And when you get off at the town, you can buy your supplies, your meat and your bread and your cheese and bottles of wine, and you can walk down to the partially restored ruins and sit in the shade with your book of Horace's poetry and read him out loud while the bottles of white wine are chilling in the 
in a spring-fed pool that might actually be the Fonsbandusie itself. It's a lovely thing to do on a hot day when you're in Italy. Now, the poetry of Horace. Uh, I keep coming back to Horace. Horace is wonderful. There's so many things you can say about him. But he's also very important for your knowledge of Western literature, uh, the references to Horace all over Western literature. Um, the uh, the poetry of Horace is famous. As a matter of fact, not too long ago, I reread a book called The Cardinal uh, by Henry Morton Robinson. You might know the film that was made by Otto Preminger uh, about an American priest who is theoretically modeled after Cardinal Spellman, and he rises quickly to eventually becomes a cardinal. That's a great film. There are some very accurate preconciliar traditions in it and uh, ceremonies, including an Episcopal consecration. It was filmed in uh, the Basilica Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in the middle of Rome, right near the Pantheon. It's very much worth your time if you haven't seen it. But in the book, uh, sadly not in the film, but in the book, there's a game involving Horace's poems, uh, a game that an American cardinal, fictionalized, fictionalized cardinal, to whom the main character, Father Stephen Formoyle, is the secretary, uh, a game that this cardinal played with a fictionalized cardinal, Mary Delval, a very famous cardinal who really lived. And the game is called Mandarino. And, uh, well, the story, uh, the story is better from the book. How about I just read you part of this book? It's from the cardinal. And uh, we find our scene on a steamship crossing the Atlantic. The cardinal and the main character, Stephen Formoyle, Father Formoyle, are on their way to Rome for a papal conclave. And the cardinal is explaining to his secretary the rocky relationship he has with an Italian cardinal who is the Camerlengo. He's the guy who's running the conclave, and he's afraid that this Italian, in his spite, will start the conclave before the Americans get there on their steamship. So here is part of The Cardinal by Henry Morton Robinson. The Cardinal launched into a rationalized explanation. I could say that the Lord Camberlengo has a personal grudge against me, and it's true enough, he has. The beginnings of the grudge go back to the reign of Leo XIII, when we were both domestic prelates in that great pontiff's household. Temperamentally, Jacobi and I never liked each other. He didn't care for my piano playing, and I could never stomach his fondness for parrots. Parrots? Yes. His rooms were full of nasty birds, hook-nosed like himself, always screaming in some outlandish dialect, Sicilian, probably. Some people found it amusing, but my observation about parrot lovers is that they're usually queer birds themselves. Stephen smiled. Something more important than piano playing and parrots must have come between you. Numberless things came between us. My being an American irked Jacoby. He resented the fact that God had blessed the United States, his newest plantation in the West, with so much wealth and vigor. To put it in a sentence, Jacoby is one of those Italians who have run the church so long they think it belongs to them. Glennon went off on a fresh tack. 
Jacoby was jealous of the warm friendship between Mary Del Val and myself. How it chafed him when Mary and I would return from a tramping holiday through the Alban Hills, and what peasant grimaces he would make when he heard us playing a Bach Toccata arrangement for four hands. Glennon paused to relish the memory of his old adversary's discomfiture. But the iron really entered Jacoby's soul one day, when Pius X smiled paternally at a little game called Mandarino that Mary and I used to play. Mandarino? What kind of game is that? Mary and I invented it ourselves. It was played with four small oranges, or mandarini, that we'd toss back and forth at each other, keeping them in the air while we capped quotations from Horace. Glennon made juggler motions with imaginary oranges, and started to recite a verse. Quis gracilis puer As the cardinal's memory failed him, Stephen completed the line. Liquidus odoribus urgete pyra in multa rosa. Glennon glanced at his secretary in surprise. I didn't know you were a Horatian, father. I'm one of Brother Felix's boys, said Stephen. Ah, yes. Brother Felix had a passion for Horace, too. Promptly, Glennon went back to his gloatings. We went, invited Jacoby to play with us. <laughs> you should have seen him standing there, <laughs> with his mouth empty, <laughs> and his hands. Glennon was a gelatin of laughter, and his hands full of of oranges! <laughs> I guess we could call that little game they play with Horace's poetry and the, uh, and the oranges the fruits of a classical education. But I think it's time for us to hear a little Horace, actually hear the stuff. Here's uh, a wonderful ode, Ode 20 from Book 1, and it's addressed to Horace's great patron, the guy I mentioned before, Mycenas, the close friend of the Emperor Augustus, a very powerful man. And he is inviting Mycenas out to the countryside, just like maybe the country mouse once did with the city mouse, to invite him out for some simple fare. And he talks about the difference between his humble lifestyle at the Sabine farm and uh, the life that Mycenas is living in his great, great house in Rome. And uh, I'll do the Latin for you and then the English. And for the Latin, I'm going to use the classical pronunciation, uh, but also in keeping with some modern scholarship, which tried to reconstruct something of what the ancient Latin used to sound like. It's something that I studied at university years ago. And uh, there's scholarship, if you're interested in this, there's a book by W. Sidney Allen called Vox Latina, and there's a book in Italian also by a fellow named Alfonso Traiano. And uh, you're going to hear the sound of this. It's a little bit more nasal. And remember that Latin poetry measured its meter by lengths of syllables rather than merely the stress of syllables. And a couple things to pay attention to. The context of the poem, as always, we want to pay attention to our historical context. Mycenas, Horace's patron, had been ill. He almost died, and when he recovered and returned to public life and entered uh, 
Pompey's great stone theater in the campus marches for the first time after his convalescence, there was a great shout that went up from the people, and it echoed off the hills. It echoed, he, Horace says, it echoed off the Vatican Hill. Uh, remember that the Vatican Hill is not one of Rome's seven hills. It's on the other side of the Tiber. So it went across the Tiber, and the sound bounced back to the theater, the sound of the shout that went up. And uh, the hills were very much bigger in those days, and uh, the city was very, very quiet. It was before motors and electricity, so the city was silent. They could hear the echo of the sound. And Horace mentions in this uh, many famous wines of the area of that that era. Um, uh, I talk about wine we have at the suppers I make here at the Sabine Farm. Well, Horace talks about different wines in this ode. He talks about Caecubum, which comes from the area around Gaeta, which is along the coast south of Rome, and Calenian wine, and uh, Formian from southern Lazio, and also Falernian. Maybe maybe it's the, the most famous of the ancient Roman wines, Falernian, from Campania, down around modern Naples. And uh, you'll hear the word in here also, temperant, temperant, which uh, from tempero, it refers to the ancient custom of mixing wine together with water, tempering it, as it were. Um, the Romans didn't drink uncut wine. It was a sign of kind of bar barbarism or hedonism to drink uncut wine. So they'd mix it with water. Uncut wine is called merum. They had a specific word for it, merum. It's a word that we hear also in Thomas Aquinas's great hymn, the Pange Lingua, when he talks about Christ in the form of, under the form of wine, he talks about Christi merum. So listen for that word. I believe we have it in our in our poem, if I'm not mistaken. So here is Ode 20 from Book 1, and I'll follow it up right away by the translation made by Steel Comager. Vile potabis modicis sabinum canteris, graica, Codeguipse testa conditum levi datus in teatro cum tibi plausus, care maicenas, eques ut paterni luminis ripae simul et jocosa redre laudis tibi vaticani montissimago. Caecum et prelo, domitancaleno tu vive suham, mea nec valernae tempranuites, neque formiani pocula coles. You will drink famous night Mycenas, cheap Sabine wine from small cups, which I myself stored away and sealed in a Greek cask at the time when such applause was given you in the theater that the banks of your ancestral river and a pleasant echo from the Vatican mountain returned your praises. At home, you will drink Kaikuban and the grape squeezed from the Kalinian press. But neither Falernian vines nor the Formian hills season my cups. That was Ode 20 from Book 1 by the ancient Roman poet Horace. And I love in that poem uh, a structural uh, game that Horace plays. There's an, he not only describes an echo, he makes an echo in the poem itself. 
if you hear it again, you'll hear that emphatic ego ipse, I myself, and then it, later on in the poem it's echoed back by a very emphatic two bibes, you will drink. And uh, so the, there's like an echo built right into the poem, it's very clever. But this issue of the echo and uh, the reference to the Vatican Hill uh, brings back to my mind a memory of the funeral of Pope John Paul II in April of 2005. It was a very, very still day in Rome. The city was very silent because no one was out and around. There were almost no cars moving anywhere. The city was quiet because everyone was either there at the Vatican uh, following the funeral in person or they were maybe following it on television. Nothing was moving. It was strangely quiet for a modern city. And at the very end of the funeral, you might remember that watching this, when the gentlemen of His Holiness were carrying his coffin, they were all dressed in gray, remember, carrying the wooden coffin, and they were going into the basilica, and they stopped before they went into the dark darkness beyond the doors. They stopped and they turned around, and they tipped the coffin slightly up, almost as if it, they were giving people one last look at this beloved figure and a great shout went up from the piazza and uh, you couldn't hear it uh, on the television coverage I, I heard a tape later they had the Sistine Chapel uh, highly amplified playing over the top of this uh, while they showed the image but you couldn't hear the shout that went up from the piazza at the time when they turned around and then after that they they uh, went into the basilica they they slowly did that pivot move and went into the dark darkness of the basilica beyond the doors but uh with all the people that were there um the shout was huge and from my high vantage point i was up on the arm of the colonnade very very close to the basilica but on the straight part before it starts to curve I was, that's where I was that day I wasn't on television I wasn't on Fox News that day I was up on the colonnade because I just wanted to be there just attend the mass of the bishop who ordained me I was ordained by John Paul II and when that shout went up into the sky when they turned his body around it was probably I think the loudest purely human sound ever heard in the nearly 3,000-year history of Rome. that let's wrap up this podcast i'm taking us out with some music composed by rafael mary del val this is the same cardinal mary del val uh, whom we heard about earlier he was a very controversial figure in his day a very powerful figure he had been 
the head of the Holy Office. He had been Secretary of State and had a long and very distinguished career. Uh, he is known for his piety. He's a servant of God, uh, Mary Delval. His cause for uh, beatification has been introduced. He wrote a very nice litany of humility, which is used in in private prayer books. It's not usable for public prayer as a litany, but uh, people can recite it on their own. And he was controversial in his time. Uh, he had a, a rival, a Cardinal Rampola, and he was involved in all the, the business of the Conclave of 1914. And, uh, well, we can hear about that another time. Here's music, uh, not very good music, I have to say, by Raphael Mary Delval. Get the impression that you're drowning in maple syrup when you're listening to it, but I thought it would be pertinent for us uh, because of what we heard earlier. Let's listen to a little bit of them as we go out. Yeah, that's about enough of that. I hope you come and visit at the blog wdtprs.com, whiskey, delta, tango, papa, romeo, sierra.com. What does the prayer really say? Chime in, you can make your contributions. You can also contribute voicemail if you'd like. On the left sidebar, there's a spot where you can click, and if you have a microphone connected to your computer, and you can record and save it, you can attach it to email and send it to me, or you can use the, the box on the sidebar to leave me voicemail. If it's good and it's pertinent, I'll include it in these podcasts. God bless you. Bye-bye.